0: Hello, Human Nature listeners. This is Megan Feary, and I'm so excited to announce that a brand new episode of Human Nature is coming your way on July 12th. But while you wait for that, I have something a little different for you today. I want to introduce you to another podcast from Wyoming Public Media called The Modern West. It's hosted by my dear friend, Melody Edwards, who is so extremely talented. And if you love the storytelling we do here at Human Nature, you're going to love her podcast. This is episode five from the most recent season of The Modern West. It's called Rematriation, and it's all about the wild bison returning. I really hope you enjoy it, and I hope that after you listen, you head to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to the other seasons of The Modern West. They're all available right now. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of The Modern West, and I'll see you on July 12th for a brand new human
1: nature. It's kind of hard to imagine it now when you drive across the Great Plains, but 60 million animals used to migrate across North and Central America. I find it easiest to imagine at night, sleeping under the stars as they grunted and muttered all around you for hundreds of miles. It took weeks for herds to pass by. The American bison was once one of the largest free roaming herds on Earth. Maybe that sounds like they'd leave behind a devastated landscape, but in fact, in their wake, they left the soil richer and the land blossomed. Thanks to their aerating hooves and nutrient rich poop and pea and useful fur, they attracted a huge diversity of life. Microbes, bugs, birds, rodents, predators. But now, imagine the sudden silence of the prairie at night without the herds passing by. In three years alone, between 1872 and 1874, five and a half million bison were killed by the U.S. Army. The decimation of these great herds as a tactic to halt the Plains Indian War Parties brought a sharp end to this ecological fecundity. And that's why many Plains tribes want to see bison come back. Not as cross-bred livestock, but as a true wild, migrating mammal. To do that, there'd need to be an evolution in the way that we interact with the natural world, Yuvna Soldier Wolf says. You remember Yufna from our last episode, the gal who went toe-to-toe with the U.S. Army to bring home the remains of her ancestors and rebury them the proper way? Well, Yufna didn't stop there. These days, she works as the Indigenous Conservation Advocate for the Wyoming Outdoor Council and is making sure her community is at the table in decisions about land and water and wildlife.
2: You know, reciprocity is huge for tribes. So when you treat the land and Mother Earth the way that it's been treated throughout for 500 years, it's obviously going to turn out the way it is. We're at a 30 by 30 climate change place where there's no going back. We've we've hit the industrial mark of ruining all of our water, our air.
1: What she's referring to there is an international goal to protect. of the Earth's land and water by 2030. And because Yufna is Yufna, she won't stand by and let that goal fall to pieces. She's part of a growing movement in Indian country that's often referred to as rematriation. You heard that right, not repatriation. That's a word we heard a lot about last episode in reference to returning artifacts and the remains of their ancestors to tribes. The dictionary definition of repatriation is the return of someone or something to their own country of origin. So what is rematriation? It's a nuanced idea, so I'll let Yufna do the honors.
2: Rematriation, the definition of rematriation, comes from the idea of not a patriarchal system telling you how any of our ideas should be westernized, because as traditional people, we have our own teachings, and it's called traditional ecological knowledge. That traditional knowledge has been here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That teaching of ecological knowledge has always been ingrained in Indigenous people. What does it look like if we were to do traditional healing, traditional rematriation, bringing back the things that we want as not just men, but women and two-spirited people?
1: Yuvna says rematriation is a return to a more reciprocal relationship with nature.
2: And you cannot be a part of the environment if you don't have women. And that's that connection that we've lost in society. And we disempower women in our environment so much that it's that patriarchal system. You see that every day when we um, we take and we take and we take something that doesn't belong to you. And that's that patriarchal system of taking minerals, natural resources, things from the land that aren't supposed to be taken. And so in an analogy, that's the same way Western men treat Western women in that colonial system.
1: Once again, it's about healing a bloody history of exploitation built on ideas of ownership and power. Rematriation would turn that system on its head but yufna says that means environmentalists politicians corporate decision makers they need to take a dose of humility and learn to listen
2: when you talk about the plants the water the star knowledge the stories you know all of these connections that value comes from that matriarchal system and so rematriation is huge when you talk about conservation i wish In like five years, I hope it's not being called conservation. I hope conservationists realize that they need to let Indigenous people lead because they are the key to making sure that the environment is back in balance. I personally get to witness
1: a project where women and gender non-conforming Native leaders are very much at the wheel. I take a trip in the middle of winter with my photographer Ana Castro to far northern Montana, It's there that we see over 100 wild bison set free onto the high prairie of the Fort Peck Reservation. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. It's an unlikely spot for a winter party. On the high plains outside Wolf Point, in the extreme northeast corner of Montana, people gather around a large Quonset hut full of tractors, a couple industrial-looking trailers, and a big corral. In every direction, blinding white snow blankets rolling hills. Bison skulls hang on the gates. Little girls in pink snowsuits run around. Teenage boys start building fires. The question right this minute, though, is where to put the fires.
3: The hey, <laughs> those fires were supposed to be over here, not over there. Not supposed to light them till after the buffalo are in the corral. Bring those log
1: things I gave you. Bring them over here so we can
3: get this one started.
1: That's Johnny Bearcub's stiffarm, an older lady with a stylish salt and pepper haircut <laughs> and a long, colorful coat covered in geometric shapes. She's an enrolled member of the Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux Tribes. And Johnny's running this show.
3: Boy, guys, they got so many many bosses. (laughs) Everyone's telling them something different.
1: (laughs) Johnny and I find a place to sit in the sun on plastic chairs inside the open door of the Quonset, and she fills me in on today's plan.
3: There's going to be two deliveries. This first delivery is going to be... 30 cow-calf pairs, and there's going to be, I believe, seven bulls coming from Yellowstone Park, and they will be arriving later this evening. And then on Thursday, there'll be another group arriving. So altogether, there should be about maybe 60 or 70
1: in each group, so maybe about 120 to 140. The animals that are on trucks headed our way are not the kind of bison that you see grazing behind fences across the West, identical to the wild version to the naked eye, but grazing placidly behind fences that wild bison would tear to pieces. These are genetically pure bison, descended from those enormous herds that once roamed the continent. Never interbred with cattle, their instinct to roam is still very much intact. And so when this year's brutal snows came along, large numbers of bison started leaving Yellowstone. Thing is, any bison that migrates out of Yellowstone is required to be killed, or they used to be, until the Fort Peck tribe created a quarantine program to rescue them. They go through two
3: phases of quarantine at Yellowstone Park. And once they have finished those two phases, they come to the Fort Peck tribes for their last and final phase. We keep them for a year. They arrive after they have been tested down in Yellowstone before they're loaded into the, the semis to bring up here. And then we keep them for six months, and we test them. And then we keep them another six months, and then we test them again. If all of their tests turn out to be negative in that, then we get them prepared and ready to be transferred to either other tribes, federally recognized tribes who want them, and have the facilities and the ability to care for them, or we'll send them to other conservation herds.
1: Johnny is a semi-retired corporate executive working for an employee-owned company called Native that sets up carbon offsets. But these days, she's also involved with a volunteer group that works to educate the public about the cultural value of bison. They help the tribes fish and game with grants and research, and host events like this one. It's called the Pate Group. Pate is female buffalo in our language. You might be wondering why I keep calling these animals bison, and Johnny calls them buffalo. That's because buffalo is the cultural name for this animal. For indigenous people, it's a term that's endowed with much more significance than the scientific name that I'm using as a non native person. Johnny says that's why it's so devastating when the U.S. government killed off nearly all of them. They provided everything for
3: us. Robbie Magnum, our buffalo. Uh, our Fish and Game director always says that a bison for the Indians in those days was like Walmart. It had all their household goods. It had all the food you could possibly need. It had everything you could possibly need for survival. It provided that for us. But the thing that wiped out the Plains Indians and put us in a position where we were at almost extinct was not only the diseases that we were not ready to deal with because we had no resistance to those diseases, and that wiped out a large portion of our population, but the other thing was they took away our food source, wiped out that food source, and starved us to death. So when we could no longer hunt buffalo, because there were no buffalo, you know, people begin to die. Buffalo provided so much for us and it was such an integral part of our cultural and spiritual ways. That was like the final straw.
1: And for the Plains tribes, the pain left behind by genocide and the decimation of bison didn't go away over time.
3: That history is raw, it has never healed yet. I would say give it another 500 years.
1: In fact, bison were reduced to such small numbers that Johnny didn't see one in person her whole childhood. In all of my life, I have never seen
3: a live buffalo until I was in my late 20s. I'd only seen them in books or pictures. In my late 20s, I saw one at a zoo. And I always remembered I was just amazed and saddened because it was like us. They were in a cage like we were in the reservations.
1: So in the early 2000s, the Sioux and Assiniboine tribes of Fort Peck decided to find out just how disconnected from bison they really had become. A group of war veterans got together and started asking hard questions. You know, if we're getting these buffalo back, what are we going to do and how do we let our people know?
3: How do our people feel about it? And so our community, our tribal community college, along with Montana State University, who helped them, put together a survey and did a reservation-wide survey. They asked people if they had ever seen a live buffalo. They asked people if they ever had tasted buffalo meat. They asked people you know, what they think of buffalo. They asked them if they realized that the Fort Peck tribes had a herd of buffalo. Um, and that was a really a revealing survey because it indicated that there was a large percentage of our population who had no clue um, that we did have buffalo. They had never tasted buffalo. They did not believe they would ever have
1: access to buffalo. The survey was a catalyst. After that, the Fort Peck tribes got serious about reconnecting community members with the cultural significance of bison. This is where the Pate group got proactive.
3: So it was at that point that we began to get together the effort of reaching out and spreading information into the community, encouraging activities to expose them to come out here and visit the buffalo. Uh, we worked with the school teachers to help develop some type of curriculum. The tribe has passed a resolution so that every school on the reservation, including the border schools, have an opportunity to come out and hunt a buffalo for educational purposes and to use the meat for their fundraisers for their clubs and that.
1: Like throwing winter parties whenever wild Yellowstone bison are released onto the reservation.
3: Like at this event, you know, we'll be providing the evening meal uh, for the truck drivers and all the staff that are coming in with the buffalo and the volunteers. Um, We'll make sure that we have breakfast burritos and that for them bright and early, you know, tomorrow morning when they release the animals at daybreak. So we try to make the experience as wonderful and as comfortable and as memorable as we can for those of them who are volunteering and helping us to work with our buffalo and to get them here and to get them out to other places.
1: Our time is up. Johnny needs to get back to work. The trucks loaded up with bison cows and calves are nearly here.
3: Well, I texted Shammy and I said, how far are, out are you? Are on the res yet? And She said, we're way past the bridge. She said, we're about 10, 15 minutes out. First trailers will come first with the bulls, and then there'll be the semi and then there'll be the pickup with Shammy in a minute.
1: The teenagers now have a fire going and the little kids are roasting hot dogs and marshmallows. you want a hot dog? Yes. I want a hot dog. Your I turn. don't want to it up sure it's cold but the mood is festive downright joyful the adults stand around the fire trying to stay warm and that's where I meet Kai Teague the environmental science programmer for the American Indian College Fund and a member of the Pate Group Kai says the teens in the drumming group had to build the fire further away than usual, and they aren't sure if they'll be able to play the buffalo song until later because of how nervous this batch of animals is reported to be.
4: I think when they originally bring them in on the trucks and stuff, like, we're going to be relatively quiet because Johnny was saying that this group was kind of... Skittish. Skittish, mm-hmm. yeah, and so I think tonight, what, they just release them into the corral. And then tomorrow morning,
1: they Let release them. to into the major, yeah,
4: Uh And then, um, so I'm not sure, I mean, I know in the past that when they've come up and released them, like these boys have sung and stuff, but I think we'll, so I don't know if they'll sing before or right after maybe, but, and then I know they're, I mean, I think just having food and kind of visiting and (laughs) waiting for those guys to get here.
1: Kai is Apache and Dakota and has a degree in sustainable agriculture. That's why they're here today. Wild bison, Kai says, is an example of the future of sustainability, and tribal colleges are getting involved.
4: Nobody has curriculum around buffalo. How to manage, how to, how to manage the buffalo, how to steward the lands, where buffalo are, how to understand like, the medicines around there. Like, so I don't think this is an opportunity for them to learn with each other to develop it together Mm -hmm. and then a lot of times what happens is one person will create it and then another person's like how'd you do that or they'll create it and so it's like let's support each other and stop like you know reinventing yeah reinventing yeah over and over and i mean (laughs) the the lands the landscapes are going to be different you know but but that's the other thing that they're looking at is like What are the plants and the medicines that are, like, shared across the regions, you know? Like, what are the effects on the water? Because all those tribes are also looking at water, the health of water systems. And so it's an opportunity to look at, like, not just the before, but, like, the impact on the lands, the impact on the waters.
1: Kai says that tribal colleges are also getting involved documenting the cultural and spiritual lessons that bison can teach.
4: You know, like, we're trying to, everybody's talking about healing and stuff like that, but, like, we need grounding. We need mm-hmm. something to, like, ground to, to understand what strength looks like. And and I, I'm not as familiar with the stories to be able to tell them, but I know that there's stories around the way that, like, herds move, like, the the children are on the inside, you know? And a lot of times, like, the, the women and the matriarchs and then the males, and, like, they, they circle around them, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a way that they move through, like, snow and stuff like that, mm-hmm. like, one... Like leads and takes that lead and you know they turn towards the wind they don't move away from challenges so there's like all these analogies in the way that they are that we refer to that teach us how to be and so and we need that because we've I mean Western education and as like an example we we thought it was going to do something for us and, and it eradicated you know our ways of knowing and so like this is our, our education. And, and, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This is like this is our education right here. Like, this is gonna show us like yeah.
1: how to learn. As I'm speaking with Kai, Johnny gets another text from the semi truck. The truck hauling all the bulls caught a flat tire, and they'll be pulling in later. But the cows and calves are almost here. When Johnny talks, everyone stops to listen even the little kids.
5: All you guys that can
3: hear me, they're gonna be here in about five, ten minutes. When they come, we have to be super, super quiet. Wait until they back up there and then watch until they unload. Once they get unloaded and get all of those cow calves into the crowds, then we can be noisy.
1: The crowd hushes and we see the semi pull in. The Blackfeet tribe does all the trucking for this program another example of how collaborative this effort is. It backs up to the corral and starts releasing the cows and calves. After they're all out, two calves refuse to unload. Yeah, there's still two babies in there. They can't get them out? They don't want to come out. I can see them moving around in there.
3: Yeah. So they'll move one way and then they'll run back to that corner again.
1: The calves are still a little rust-colored and fuzzy. Johnny and Kai stand at the fence, watching and talking quietly.
3: Oh, they're just so cute, those little babies.
1: Seems like they're all okay,
6: huh?
3: Yeah, they're all good. Nothing broken, nothing hurt.
1: Not long after, the second truck arrives with the bulls and releases them into the corral too. Once the families have reunited, they'll all be released into the reservation's pastures. We'll come back to see that at daybreak tomorrow. In the meantime, Johnny says it's okay to celebrate.
2: Hey, babe. She can whoop de doo She Grandma can whoop de doo all she wants. Grandma said she can whoop de doo <laughs> Grandma gave the clear green light.
1: <laughs> the parents help the little kids climb the fence so that they can see the baby bison.
2: <laughs> now, hang on, there you go, good. Look at that. I can't get up. You can, you're gonna to have to try, come on. Ready, one, two, three. Come on. I now Joy I
0: can hand
3: our
2: hands. That's the basket
4: for them, who? Wow, see the babies? So,
2: welcome home.
5: Welcome home.
2: Welcome home? Welcome home.
4: Welcome
2: home! Welcome home.
1: Standing at the fence, I meet one of the teenage drummers, John John Williams. Unlike Johnny, John John has spent his whole life watching his tribe's wild bison herd grow in numbers on his reservation.
2: Makes me feel very happy in a way, I yeah. guess. Yeah, seeing the buffalo coming around and stuff like that. I like the fact that uh, it's yeah. really uh, an honor to see to see it come yeah. and yeah, it's just very uh, a spiritual moment, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Fort Peck tribal member Suzanne Turnbull stands with her elbows over the fence. Suzanne is also an active member of Pate. That's the identity for our our, our tribe is our buffalo,
7: mm-hmm. so they're our relatives. I'm I always feel like crying when they when they come home.
8: Yeah. <laughs> it's always really emotional
7: when they come home. Yeah. Because I believe that's gonna heal our people. I really believe that. Yeah. So I have my granddaughter here today and she's been coming out here since she's been a baby uh-huh. to see her. She's talking. one of these little, little Yeah, ones. she's <laughs> one of my little ones here, yeah. so
1: Suzanne says without the Pate group, the bison program wouldn't be as sustainable.
7: Well, we speak for them, mm-hmm. and we pull together all the, the parties that are interested in their health mm-hmm. and um, cultural, yeah. language, um, actually we are actually more stable than our tribal government because it turns over every two years with elections, so our Pate group's been together since 2014. Really? So we've seen a lot of buffalo come and go. Yeah.
1: The Assiniboine and Sioux tribes have built an $800,000 facility here so that they can serve as a clearinghouse to find homes with other tribes for rescued wild Yellowstone bison. Suzanne says they do this because they're returning the favor that the bison did for them. She tells the story from a viewpoint we don't hear much in history or science books, the bison's.
7: When I hear and I tell the story that a small group, when the railroad came and they wanted to just outright slaughter Buffalo for their hides, for their whatever, part of that was a federal Indian policy to force um, mostly our, our, the Sioux people onto reservations who didn't want to go to live that, to live that lifestyle because they were already starving on reservations with rations. But a small group of, of they say, approximately 25 themselves into the Yellowstone Park to save themselves. So they knew, you know, they were on the brink of extermination mm-hmm. and we were fighting for our way of life as well, mm-hmm. our language, our cultural practices, mm-hmm. our um, kinship, our families were destroyed and broken apart because of federal Indian policy, yeah. education policies. So there is that intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. but I see the buffalo coming back. To help us heal, so they took care of us. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't the survival of my ancestors, all that they mm-hmm. went through, um, because of our buffalo. Mm-hmm. And so now it's our turn to take care of them and protect them.
1: Suzanne says she loves seeing the moms and the babies released into the corral to roam around looking for each other.
7: So I've seen them out here yeah. lead their lead their little family groups off, yeah. and I've I've come out to watch them when they're bright orange when they're first born. I've come out during rut season at night and listen to them. Oh, they're beautiful. And they are, I come out and get sheds in the summer, because I'll bring visitors out. Mm -hmm. And um, their hide has no odor. Mm -hmm. They are the cleanest animals, buffalo. Really? Yeah, and we've we've cleaned their guts. I mean, I'm not
1: catching with snow at all. No, they're just a
7: clean animal. We've cleaned their guts, and Mm -hmm. we like our our tripe here, Taniga. That's in Dakota. we like our taniga, and that's the, you know, the intestines. And, you know, we've cleaned it, and it just doesn't have an odor like cattle. Mm-hmm. Cattle have a really tough yeah. odor, yeah. yeah. But they're very particular about their, where they eat, they, they move on. You'd never know because they don't graze down
1: to nothing. Johnny told me that several prophecies have foretold that the bison would return and revitalize the Plains tribes. Suzanne agrees. She believes that's what we're witnessing right now. It's time
7: now for us to um, regain what was made our tribe so um, bountiful and plentiful at one time. To me, this is the way back. And um, they do have that healing energy. Their healing energy, we, they have that buffalo song those those young men will sing. And they were little boys here in 2014. And now they're once in college, they're in high school. And here they are still here yeah. singing that beautiful buffalo song to welcome them home these are your buffalo to instill that belief and that um that sense of responsibility because somebody will have to take care of them. i won't be here forever so we have to have that oh there comes that here we go oh, it's a buffalo song yay hooray
1: Suzanne and I head over to the campfire where John John and the other drummers are playing the Buffalo song. One of the bulls still won't come off the truck, and they're playing a song to calm him down.
5: They're singing Buffalo songs. One of them they just sang was, the Buffalo come out dancing. Uh, They're the Buffalo nation. uh So it's kind of comforting the Buffalo right now to get him to come off the trailer and join the others. Yeah, he's not to come off that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's Remy Growing Thunder. She's the language and cultural director for the Assiniboine and Sioux tribes of Fort Peck. And some of the drummers are her sons. She's bundled up in a colorful coat and hat, but her generous smile isn't covered up. It shines in the firelight. She says it's her job to help her tribe remember how interconnected they are with bison, even their nutrition.
5: It's good for... Um, Our older grandmas and grandpas that are maybe diabetic, it brings down the blood sugar, it's really good blood thinner, and and it's just really healthy to eat because you think about it, they graze off of the land, mother earth, we're close to her. And what the buffalo ingests, we ingest it, and in turn helps our systems.
1: Remy says they're not waiting for children to come to the bison, they're taking the bison to children.
5: Yeah, we've We've actually created curriculum material where we take the buffalo and we name every part of the buffalo and what it's used for, and we put it in our language, our Dakota and Nakota language. And then we have this really cool buffalo box. And we have one, and we labeled every part in that box in the language. So we're not only reconnecting the children to the buffalo and the significance there, but also to the language.
1: Rimi has dreams of going even further with this curriculum.
5: My long-term goal is to create a tribal school and within this tribal school, have it at an area, a facility that can house some buffalo so that our youth, our students can go to these buffalo and learn how to take care of them and to have that connection with them every day and to pray with them. And also, you know, just just to hold reverence with them, to reconnect truly instead of hearing about it and not really um, looking at the you know, the buffalo themselves versus, like, just from a book. There's a big difference. It's place-based learning. Yeah.
1: And it's this kind of creative approach to education that might begin healing the long history of Indian boarding schools. It's plumb dark now. The photographers turn off their floodlights in the campfires are the only light around for miles. As the party dies down, I wander over to the corral and listen to the bison snuffling and grunting to their young. It feels so important what the Fort Peck tribes are doing here. But tribes across the nation are focusing on more than just bison. They're making sure that they're at the table in heated discussions about how to allocate the Colorado River. Or bring back the endangered black footed ferret, or figure out how to manage grizzly bears and wolves. And lots of other issues. Almost any environmental or wildlife issue these days has tribes getting involved. You might remember that Yufna called this sharing traditional ecological knowledge. That's actually a very technical term, all caps. And the Biden administration recently committed to including more of that knowledge in its natural resources decision-making going forward. It's helped a lot that U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland is a member of the Laguna Pueblo. Here's how she phrased it.
5: In this time of climate change, uh, bearing down upon us that indigenous knowledge about our natural world will be extremely, Valuable and important to all of us, not just the Department of the Interior. Indian tribes have been on this continent for millennia,
1: for tens of thousands of years. Uh, They know how to take care of the land. I talk to Kai, the environmental steward, a lot about all of this over the phone when I get home. They tell me this work is very personal for them. They're working to regenerate their grandmother's land on Fort Peck, piece by piece, planting native grasses and trees and growing a garden. Already they've seen more wildlife returning.
6: One day I was standing outside and I remember thinking like, what can I do? Like, what can I do in my life? What can I give back? I think sometimes restoration or participation in like supporting stewardship of your lands can seem really unrealistic. Like it can seem really hard. And one day I was like, well, I'll just start, you know, like I'll start with one small area and I'll see how it goes and then I'll go to the next area and see how that goes. And so when you add it up, you know, over 10 years of time, like I can restore our family's land.
1: Kai started attending the Native American church with their son's grandfather and through ceremony has been learning a new way to connect with the natural world in which every species is a relative.
6: I've been taught that we ask We we ask for things. If we want something from someone, we go and we give them something and we ask them. We do the same thing with, you know, when we harvest. When When we take something, we offer something and we say thank you. Whether that's, you know, we're handling the soil or we're harvesting carrots or turnips or buffalo, we're managing something with fire, you know, we're taking care of fire in our ceremonies. Like, we talk to them, we talk to those things. Like, those are our relatives.
1: This approach to interacting with nature is very different from a scientific one. And Kai says that as someone working for tribal colleges, that's been a challenge. We have
6: to acknowledge that education was not created as a healing space. Um, education was created as, to create a labor force primarily for people of color. And it was a space of assimilation. Um, and in educational spaces, and especially in the sciences, right, like oftentimes Indigenous people's knowledges have been disregarded as missed. At tribal colleges, when there isn't space made, in any college, in any educational institution, when there isn't space made to have an honest conversation about that, like it continues to push people of color and Indigenous people away from those fields, from science fields, from education in general. Because it kind of, like, puts the blame on the victim, right? Like, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. When really it's like, you know what? Like, the system did this.
1: Kai saw many young people start to recognize this problem when they attended the Dakota Access Pipeline protests at Standing Rock Reservation in 2016 and joined the effort of the water protectors.
6: Like, Standing Rock showed a lot of us what was possible. In my generation, you know, I've never seen anything like that. Like, I've never seen tribes come together like that. But like I was able to go there once and, you know, people were setting up schools. They were setting up language schools and, and schools about medicines and, you know, they were just creating it all themselves. You know, they were, they had governance, you know, they had means of protecting one another
1: Kai says part of this growing movement means more room for a feminine perspective.
6: There is a very intentional intersection in terms of violence against women, LGBTQ, two spirit people, and land. And so when I think about rematriation, like I think about giving back and taking back and, and like remembering the power of women, the power of two spirit people the power of the land. Um, and removing that like that patriarchal, that patronizing like voice and all the things that come with it that has been like laid down on top of it.
1: Every square inch of this nation once belonged to indigenous people, although many tribes didn't adhere to concepts of property ownership. Throughout this story I've talked about how Native Americans are finding a place at the table to share their traditional ecological knowledge. Bakai Takes issue with that analogy.
6: I mean, I think the table should be ours.
7: <laughs> like, you
6: know, I'm like, I think the table should be ours. And I think that we should be able to invite people. We are constantly trying to figure out how to fit in that shape or that structure or to fix or repair this shape or structure. It's like an architect attempting to build a house or to repair a house whose foundation is a (laughs) sandbank. Because there has still yet to be an acknowledgement that that table is built upon colonization and assimilation and genocide and appropriation. Like, there's still nowhere in a conversation like a larger collective conversation in this nation an acknowledgement that that table was built on the backs of others.
1: Talking to Indigenous leaders and thinkers over and over, I've had people ask me to imagine, to imagine what it was like to experience a massacre or to have your children taken. So maybe more than anything, my job here is to pass along that request, to imagine what it would look like for Indigenous nations to own the table where we sit down to discuss how to care for land and water and animals. Standing at the corral in the dark, Listening to the Bison families reuniting, it felt like I was already at such a table. The next morning, we get up before dawn and drive out to see the bison officially set free on the prairie. It's bitterly cold, and a dense fog makes a blur of the landscape. While we wait, I get to talking to the Fort Peck Reservation's game and fish guy, Les Bighorn. He tells me that in six months, they'll round all the animals back up for another round of testing.
8: A vet from EFIS comes, and Doc Warner, our vet, come, and then we run them into the into this big silver thing here yeah. put a lot of, whatever we can not too much but then we have uh, everybody has a position and we put them in there and we one at a time run them through that squeeze shoot mm-hmm. and stops it squeezes it and he uh, lifts his tail takes blood and does whatever he has to do and then we release them and wait for six months and then do it again six months and then we get him on and once we get the at the one year mark we get the okay everything's good. And we round them back up.
1: That's when the quarantine in Fort Peck's facility is over, and other tribes can adopt them. <music> the first time they adopted out bison, it was to the Bronx Zoo, but the craziest adoption they ever did was to a tribe on an island in Alaska.
8: They made a special containers for them. You know, we had at their three big bulls. And we got them in here. We loaded it in their special container on the semi and a Blackfeet Tribe uh, uh, Trucking Company. Took them from here and they went all the way to Seattle. And they got to Seattle, then they loaded them up on the big old FedEx plane. Jeez. Hey, big one, they loaded them <laughs> up on there then they flew into Anchorage. Then from Anchorage to get to the island where the tribe is, they had to get on the ferry. So they got a boat ride across and then uh-huh. the, that, that video shows where they they release them out and they're with all these other uh, Uh, Their their herd, you know, the expander.
1: Oh, so they had some already? They had some already. They They
8: just, yeah, see, a lot of what this does, a lot of this does is just the the genetics. Mm -hmm. See, we send the bulls, people want bulls because they already have herds, but they, you know, after you, you can only keep your bulls so much, so you don't want to get them inbreeding just like cattle.
1: All this quarantining and testing of these animals, it makes it seem like they're riddled with disease. What they're testing for specifically is brucellosis a bacterial infection that causes cows to abort their calves. So I ask less. Do you guys ever, when you're testing, is it? do you ever find anything? Is there ever any no, disease? No, or?
8: no. They have to stay down there two years. Yeah. So, so you pretty, know that they're... They're testing more uh-huh. than twice a year yeah. they, in that first two years, phase one and phase two. And it sounds like they're tested, you know, constantly. Yeah. You know.
1: and did, And even down there, do they find anything? No, no. And yet Johnny told me there's a lot of pushback from Montana lawmakers about the Fort Peck quarantine program. The local ranchers are concerned that wild bison will spread brucellosis. That's why Yellowstone bison are required to be killed as soon as they migrate out of the park. If you've seen that latest season of the TV show Yellowstone, spoiler alert, the ranch decides to move their entire cattle herd to Texas because wild bison migrate onto their ranch, leaving behind dead bison calves. But Johnny and Les both say this isn't an accurate depiction. But what I understand from the science
3: and from the history and the record-keeping is that it is elk that are bringing the brucellosis to the cattle and not the buffalo. Because as far as we know, there is no recorded record of a buffalo passing brucellosis to pregnant cows. But there are records of elk doing that.
1: Yet elk are allowed to migrate as a wild animal, while bison are not. Even Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Shawley recognized this contradiction. In a recent New York Times article, he said, quote, it's hard to claim bison are presenting an imminent threat to livestock, while thousands of brucellosis-infected elk are literally side-by-side with livestock, and there's no strategy to manage that interface, end quote. And anyway, as a rancher friend of mine pointed out recently, there's already a vaccine for brucellosis that protects cattle. Johnny says underneath all the accusations about bison spreading brucellosis is really a fear of what she calls rewilding the prairie, that there will be less farm and ranch land if bison are allowed to be wild again. And there's this other reason.
3: I would say I believe the conflicts will always be there. Mostly because of racism. I think there is a thing such as white guilt. And no matter how you couch the language for certain things, that will always rub someone the wrong way. And they will have a reaction against that that is negative. And so I think the conflict will always exist there. It may become
1: more subtle, but it will never go away. In other words, there's a knee-jerk reaction to defend the history of colonization, a painful guilt for that history that we as a nation can't face, and so, instead, we double down on our reasons for decisions like annihilating bison as a species. But Johnny and Les both say that tribes are moving forward anyway. Les says these days, lots of tribes are signing onto a buffalo treaty.
8: We all got together. We yeah. had a second, our second one here. We had teepees and all the tribes came and they signed uh, documentation and paper, like a constitution that they all we all try to work with, bring the buffalo back to our lands.
1: 29 tribes in the U.S. and Canada have now signed the Buffalo Treaty and committed to quote, welcome buffalo to once again live among us as Creator intended, by doing everything within our means, so we and buffalo will once again live together and nurture each other culturally and spiritually end quote. Less says they're working to adopt out wild bison to Canadian tribes as well.
8: The only ones left are, are we got everything done, that was our goals, but they're just the Canadians, not the, so but the red tape to get them across the border is what's mm. kind of holding things up. Yeah. But it, the, the, the red tape was getting less and less.
1: And Johnny says they're in the beginning stages of creating short migration corridors too. She says the Blackfeet have been working to create one with their allies across the Canadian border. And she wonders.
3: Will there be a potential for a corridor between northeastern Montana and Saskatchewan area? I don't know. No one can really know. There's a lot of legalities involved in it. There's a lot of things that have to happen and be in place. You know, I would, I would like to see at least within my lifetime our tribe and other tribes similar to ours to designate these buffalo pasture areas as tribal parks and sanctuaries
1: for the animals and the plants. Les and the other animal handlers head off to release the bison out of the corral. The children climb the fence and we all line up to watch. The fog still hasn't lifted. And when the gate opens, the animals gallop out into it and disappear almost instantly. It feels almost anticlimactic. Where do they go? What do they do next? We don't know. Since I visited Fort Peck, the winter only got harsher, making it hard for the animals to get down through the deep snow to graze. So Yellowstone's bison started migrating out of the park in search of food, and that meant they were required to be killed. Normally, about six to 900 bison end up getting taken by hunters from eight approved tribes each year. But this year, many more bison left the park than usual, leading to a huge hunt that took almost 1,200 animals. When I read about this in the newspaper, I remembered standing at that corral at night with the lucky ones, the bison that the Fort Peck tribes rescued from slaughter. And I like to think of them now, out there, roaming the prairie, wild and free. Next time on The Modern West. The brutal history of the Plains Indian Wars has had lasting effects on the communities who survived them. One of the most visible signs of how that violence is still reverberating is the incredibly high rates at which indigenous people, especially women and girls, go missing and are murdered. Here's Lynette Grable, a survivor and advocate. This is something that has begun from the first settlers of the people that came to this land, and it's still happening today, it's just in modern times. We'll also talk to two mothers who lost their daughters, but who are now using their voices to stop the pain. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzelwilk. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Ryan Kelly is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Tina Unger-McGee, Emily Jankowski, and Courtney Blackmer reynolds To see Ana Castro's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Music by Eastern Shoshone musician Sean Francis and his band, Pegasus. Tlingit musician, Caskey Russell, and Apache musician, Andrew Vasquez, among others. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. We always love hearing from our listeners. Reach out to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We're also on social media at Modern West Pod. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media.